If you would, open your Bibles up to Malachi. If you can't find Malachi, find the book of Matthew and go back a page. So we go to the last book of the New Testament, Malachi chapter 3. We'll be in the same passage as we were last week. We emphasized uh, one portion of it last week. I want to look at some different questions that arise this week. You may have uh, seen this, probably not in person, but you may have seen it on a movie. A kid saying, extra, extra, read, out, read all about it. A headline, giving out paper, selling them, trying to uh, make an incredible sale because of some incredible statements. Headlines in the 1920s, which if you remember that... Praise the Lord for good health. But if not, uh, billions lost in stock market crash. A doctor's wife murdered, or as it said, in August 3rd of 1923 in the Boston Post, President Harding dead and came very suddenly. You can see a newsboy yelling that out on the papers or on the streets trying to sell that so people would buy it. Once news agencies realized that, hey, we can make money at this, it changed the game, right? If we were going to say the headline of this paper here, selling this pa- or trying to sell a paper, talking about this passage, it would, it would read, extra, extra, God's been robbed. And you would be looking at it, or you'd be thinking, well, maybe I need to read that headline. How has God been robbed? And that's exactly the question the people had for Malachi and for God. How have we robbed you? Last week, we looked at our God and how unchanging and faithful he is and how he's always ready to give and restore. And in this passage, as we look in Malachi, we would say God is, has been robbed. And this is not the primary emphasis of the passage, but it is one that we need to talk about and we need to look at. And we're going to talk about and answer some questions today. Let's read this passage. and I'm going to read this and you follow along in Malachi three verses six through twelve. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return to you? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Today, I want to look at this proposition, but we're going to answer some questions. But I want the main point that we're going to look at today is that our generous God has given us so much that we should generously give back to him. Our generous God has given us so much that we should generously give back to him. Now, when we look at this passage, immediately we probably have some questions because we see this and we see the Israelites were robbing God. And we may look at this and say, well, are we New Testament believers are New Testament believers? This is the first question we'll answer. Are we responsible to give a tithe? And you may have your answer already ready in your head. It may be a yes or it may be a no. 
Some have said that New Testament believers must give a tithe. And remember, the word tithe means 10%. And some would say it has to be 10%. Others would say it's, you, don't, you don't have to at all. Well, in the Old Testament, we'll look at it just for a second. In the Old Testament, tithing in the Mosaic law, you gave a tenth to God to the Levites or through the tribe of of the Levites. Every tribe in Israel gave money and it all went to the Levitical tribe and then they distributed some of that to the priests. Let's look in Leviticus 27, verse 30. It says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of the herd and every tenth of, a, of the animal that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. And the tithe was given to the tribe of Israel, and then they would distribute that to the priests. As it says in Numbers 18.21, it says, To the Levites I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance, to return for their service that they do their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near to the tent of the meeting, lest they bear sin and die. Now, the Levites, the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament, they were the priestly tribe. They basically carried out the, the, the uh, spiritual duties of the country. They didn't go out and make money like everybody else. They actually received money from the people. And if you remember the 12 tribes, 11 of them or would give to the Levites. And the Levitical tribe would actually give some of that 10% actually directly to the priests. So the priests could live off of that as well. And so there was a standard to give a tenth. And you may think, well, that's good. They only gave 10%. However, that's not necessarily the case. They actually gave more than that. When we look at that, uh, when we look and we see in, in Leviticus, we see that sometimes, or actually the tithe, sometimes acted like a tax. Now, you may hate the word tax. Mark just talked about taxes a little bit. And uh, since he was in town, it happened to be on this day, and he's going to be meeting with people about finances. Meet with him if you want to. Uh, tell He'll talk to you about taxes. That's no fun to talk about, right? But really... When people gave to the uh, to the Levites and the tr- the tribe, there was somewhat of a tax given or a, a, a contribution that would actually provide for the poor. Some of this was given so that people could could uh, take care of those that were widows, those that were weak, those who were unable to work. Look in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14:28 says this. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in, this, in the same year and lay it up with your own towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow and, and who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands so that you do. They would bring a basic tithe yearly, but every third year they bring another 10%. And then we would actually see some other times that they brought offerings and they brought offerings throughout the year. There was pilgrimage back to to Jerusalem. And so some theologians, theologians aren't necessarily greatest with their calculators, but they've said that somewhere between 22 to 27 percent of people's income was actually what they tithed is what they gave. And you may say, well, that seems ridiculous. I mean, I've been giving 4%, and that seems really tough. How could somebody give 20 to 27? Ask God. That's what he put in the law. Tithes and giving before the Mosaic law actually happened as well. You may say, well, we're not under the law. 
You may say, hey, we don't actually, we're not Israel. I mean, and, and I would claim that and say, for sure, we're not Israel. The church isn't Israel, and so we're not under the law like this. But there was actually pre-tithe giving or pre, uh, pre-law giving. If you look back at Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, 3 through 5, we can look at some of that. So if we look at Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, it says this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain and Abel are here and they bring uh, things to God. And God said he has no regard for the offering. And there's lots of debate as to whether this was for salvation or not, or whether it was, this was uh, what it was about. And we look in Hebrews, uh, we see this. It says Hebrews 11.4 talks about Abel's offering. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. But God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, yet still speaks. Cain kills Abel because God accepted his Abel's sacrifice instead of Cain's, and Cain was punished because of that. But still, before the law and before anything, people were offering sacrifices to God. People were giving offerings to God, and I don't believe this offering was actually for salvation. It was simply a gift to God of their first fruits, saying, I'm giving back to you, God, what you've given to me. And I'm helping you. I'm making sure that people understand and I understand that what I have is from you. God, you gave me this. You gave me these animals. I can actually give them back to you because uh, I'm, I'm submitting to you and showing that I know that you are the one that provides. Abraham and Melchizedek actually is an interesting story as well. In Genesis 14, we see how Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And if we talked, we could talk for hours about Melchizedek because he is a fascinating person in Scripture. But we're just going to kind of briefly, just flying over this, if we're like at a jet, 37,000 feet or 35,000 feet, right? We're just looking over this and seeing a glimpse of some of these things in, in uh, the Word of God in giving. And Melchizedek... Uh, is given to or given an offering to by Abraham. Look in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is interesting because he really doesn't have a beginning. We don't know where he came from. We, we believe he's like a pre-incarnate Christ or an example of that. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he has. And look in Hebrews chapter 7. It's actually interesting because uh, they, the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews relates Melchizedek to Christ, saying he had no beginning. We don't know where he came from. Christ came in the essence or in the same way as Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 1 through 12 says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And Hebrews 5, 9 through 10 says this, and help us understand this connection of Melchizedek to Christ. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Talking about Jesus being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's an argument to be made before the law. There was a tithe before the law. There was offerings to God. There was a tenth given to the priest of God. We see in the in the law, there was a command to give a tithe. And then even after that, in the New Testament, Melchizedek is said to be in the order of Christ. And so some have argued and said that a tithe is required in the New Testament. And I would say that is probably at least a good place to look at and start. And somebody could make that argument. But we're not told in the New Testament to make a tithe directly like they were in Leviticus or under the law. We're not told about a tenth. We're simply connecting Christ and Melchizedek in different ways. But I would say that there is an example throughout Scripture, no matter where you look, people gave to God out of what they had, whether it was great or small, because they wanted to submit to the creator and sustainer of all things. Melchizedek was given a, a tithe because Abraham, Abraham wanted to show that he submitted to God. And so we would say, is tithing talked about in the New Testament? I was reading this week about this, and some authors said that the tithe is never even mentioned in the New Testament. And I thought, well, that's not true. Look at Matthew 23, 23. The tithe is mentioned in the New Testament. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe. Oh, it's mentioned. For you tithe, mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In this verse, Jesus didn't tell the Pharisees, don't tithe. But he said that they were neglecting the more important matters of the law. The Pharisees were under the law. So, of course, they should have been tithing. They should have been giving 10%, a tenth of what they had. However, Jesus seems to show that they had wrong priorities. Their priorities weren't to their priorities were if I give a tenth of everything, even measure it out to the very detail, I'm good. But their heart was completely wicked. And I think this is even an example. We're going to look at this a little bit later. I think this is an example where we see Christ mentioning the tithe. And he does this again in Luke 18. And the Pharisee and the tax collector are there. And the Pharisee goes and says, I tithe. I give a tenth. Right? And I do all these things. But they're not giving because God gave them so much. They're not giving out of a heart of generosity to God. They're giving to check the box. They're giving because of legalism. I met the standard, so I'm good. Instead of God's good, and he gave to me, so I give back to him. They're saying, I'm good, God, so look at me. Jesus, there's nowhere in the New Testament that we see that tithe required, but Christ talks about it. And Christ has priority over the law of Moses. Jesus made the requirements, though, of other things higher than the tithe, or other higher than things in the Old Testament. Think about, think about that when Christ is talking and he says, uh, have you committed murder? Have you committed adultery? And they say, no, no. He says, well, have you committed adultery? If you, com- if you hate your brother or are angry with your brother, or if you've committed adultery in your heart or lusted after a woman, you've already committed those sins in your heart. 
in some sense, Christ is elevating the standards of the law. He's not he's saying, don't just check the box and say, I'm good. He's not looking for a list of all these requirements of all these things that I do. He's looking for our hearts to be submitted to him and surrendered to him. And so when we give, it's not so much the amount that matters, but I believe it's the heart behind it. And we're going to see that in the in the New Testament as we go forward. The second question we're going to ask, if I give to God or answer, if I give to God, will I receive the blessings mentioned in this passage? So we looked at the tithe. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament. But I don't think it's a required 10% we have to give. It may be a good standard. It may be what you choose. But I think that that often is going to be something that is just a minimum uh, that we look at. If I give to God, will I receive the blessings mentioned in this passage? I mean, look at Malachi 3.10 again. Look at this. I mean, this is like, if, if, if I give to God in the offering today, and this is what happens to me, I'm happy, right? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, all right? So I'm going to go calculate my 10%. Bring it exactly to God. That there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out down for a blessing and uh, until there's no more need... I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy your fruits of the soil. Your vine in the field shall never fail to bear, says the Lord of the hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And you may look at this and say, man, that would be great if I could follow that and that was me. And if I just give my tithe and I get all that back, wonderful. But I would say, will we receive this blessing that was here? Well, no. Are you Israel? No. Is the USA Israel? No. It's very clear in the Old Testament that giving to God was prescribed for blessings to Israel and to those people. Those blessings were for them. We are under grace, not the law. We are under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. That's why we don't bring an animal sacrifice. That's why we don't bring, uh, have an offering every year where somebody, uh, somebody kills an animal for the sacrificial sins or for sacrifice for our sins. We have a Savior that died for us. We're under a different rule. But that being said, 2 Corinthians 9 is very interesting. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 9. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. For you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide, uh, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Paul here encourages the Corinthians to give generously, cheerfully, freely, when whatever God's put in their heart. 
And he even says, he seems to say uh, very clearly, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Will we always receive the physical blessings that Israel did? Will we, we, are we guaranteed to have success like they were if they simply humbled and submitted to God? If we give our offering and give a huge amount with a humble heart, does that guarantee that we're always going to have an incredible bank account? It doesn't. Hebrews 11 talks about some of those that were killed, some of those that went through trials, through difficult times. Abraham gave to the Lord, but yet sometimes things didn't work out for him. We're not always guaranteed to get every dollar back that we give. We give a heart, we give out of a heart out of generosity. We may never see a return of what we invest in the Lord, but we are storing up treasures in heaven. You may ask, when should I give? Because Israel gave every couple of years. They gave certain things. They gave, you know, to different people. Different ties. Well, First Corinthians tells us on sixteen two says on the first day of the week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there's no collecting when I come. And so Paul says this, and sometimes people say think that this is simply every Sunday I need to put something in that offering box. So when you walk out, there's a little box, and you're like, if I put something in there, that's what I'm supposed to do. I believe Paul is actually saying, look, the first day of the week, which is when they usually got paid then in that time, they would store up or they would set aside. They would calculate, what can I give to the Lord from this? What do I have as I can? And they collected this so that when Paul came to speak to them, there wasn't a big collection that they had to give. So when are you to give? I'm not sure that the time matters so much as it is. There's a consistently generous heart of giving. You might talk to Mark and say, hey, this is a great time to give whatever he was talking about first in the end of the first of the year, end of the year. I don't have enough money to even think that way. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, you may be like, hey, that's a great idea. Really, when should you give? Well, we give when we see and God puts it on our heart. We give consistently. We give generously. Look at First John and think about when should I give when First John tells me this in verse, uh, chapter 3. First John three sixteen says, By this we know that he laid down his life for us, talking about Christ. We ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers. Well, that's a pretty high task, giving our lives for other people. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When should I give? Well, I mean, if you go and you say, hey, you know what, Pastor, I gave my tithe in December and I'm going to do it again or I, uh, in January. I'm going to give it again in, in January. And then you see someone in June with a big need and you're like, you know what, I gave I mean, I gave a huge amount and I'm going to give another huge amount. But, you know, I, I just can't give to that person now because I already did that. Well, then you're missing the point of the New Testament. You're missing the point of what God told us to do to be generous we're saying we see somebody in need and say, I can't do that. I've already given what I what I gave. I mean, that could hurt my I mean, my IRA that could hurt my bank account. I mean, I have plenty, but I, I really don't want to be generous. When do we give? We give when God lays it on our hearts. We give regularly. We give consistently. We give generously. 
Jesus attacked the Pharisees for paying a tenth exactly, even a tenth of their spices. Imagine your spices in your house, cutting those up or just laying out a tenth and bringing those in. Well, here's a tenth. You bring it, you, you use the container all the way down to the very last little bit, and then you bring it and put that in the, in the church pantry. In the church pantry, we see this huge stack of rice uh, or, or uh, uh, spices that are just like a tenth full. I mean, it's like, well, we don't want to combine those because then we're at least measuring it out. And we know this person gave a tenth of their spices. We laugh at it. Yet we're looking at our checkbook or our bank account and we're thinking, should I give 10 percent before taxes on my paycheck or after taxes? Should I give? I, I just can't this month. And we laugh at Christ attacking the Pharisees for this and, and getting after them for their legalism. And he's telling us, have a heart of generosity. And we're like, oh, oh no, I don't think I need to do that. We ask the question, you ask, when should I give? Well, we give regularly with a plan. Whenever the Holy Spirit leads, give often. And how much should I give? Well, man, a pastor's talking about giving and he's preaching here. Man, we just give everything, right? That's what we're going to say. It's not what the New Testament necessarily says. But giving was a requirement. Uh, giving, the re- giving requirement is no longer an external obligation as dues from every member of the covenant com- community, but rather is it, it's an expression of love for the, from the regenerated heart and the redeemed. The amount is not specific. Sometimes that's what we want, is somebody to say, tell me the amount I should give, and I'll do that. And once I've done that, I've checked the box, and that's what we want. And sometimes that makes us feel better because I gave an amount and I checked the box. But God in the New Testament talks about generosity. How much should we give? Well, a tenth would be a good idea to consider, but we should think about this. Look in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. He sat down the opposite of the treasury and watched people putting in money. Just imagine this scene. Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, Lord of the universe, sits down in a seat, and he's like, I'm just going to watch what's given. What's he say? It says he watches people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, two coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, I mean, just imagine this, right? Christ is sitting there, and he's like, hey, guys, guys, come here. Look at this. Look at those guys dumping in huge amounts of money. And it wasn't just a check, right? I mean, they had different ways where their money came. So it probably saw that it was very large sums. Like somebody brings a briefcase full of cash and says, I'm going to set this by the offering box, right? And you're like, oh, look at that dude, right? That's a lot of money. Christ calls his disciples and they're there looking probably fascinated too. Like, oh, I saw that guy bring a big old stack of cash too. Truly, I say to you, Christ says, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For all they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is saying, sacrificial generosity is the key. Sacrificial generosity is the key. We would look in the world and see a billionaire and a billionaire that gives a million dollars. That'd be impressive, right? 
A billionaire gives a million dollars to a local college. And we would say that's the biggest donation in the history of that college. Everybody would celebrate them. But there'd be many that would look and say, that guy has billions, right? Billions and billions. And if they're giving a million, that's not much. People would realize that person gave a huge amount, but he wasn't sacrificially generous. Jesus is saying, be sacrificially generous. You may say, well, that was just in the Gospels. That wasn't how people in the church did stuff. Well, Acts 2, is in, Acts 2 verse 44 is interesting. Go to Acts 2. And all who believed were together and all thing, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What did they do? They sold their possessions. They gave their belongings and distributed the proceeds to all that they had need. They had a generous heart. I would say this. Radical, sacrificial generosity is what we are called to as believers. I'm not saying this as a pastor saying, hey, do this so I can bump my salary. I get paid well. I'm happy with what I make. I'm happy. My, my life is wonderful. I get to serve people here in a wonderful place. I get to serve where my family is. I'm grateful for that. I'm not saying give so that I can get a raise. I'm saying give because that's what God has asked us to do. Radically sacrificial generosity so that we can say, let's reach the Rio Grande Valley. We have hundreds and thousands of housing units have got, that have gone in a mile north of us. We have tons of people in this area that are exploding. If we said, let's give radically and sacrificially so we can do mailers to them, we can send out things and reach this community, let's do it. Let's give radically and sacrificially so that we can see God bless, so that we can see people saved. Not so that we look at our bank account and say, well, I gave a thousand last month. Hopefully I get a random two thousand just back in the bank account. No, we give so that God's work and his glory can be shown throughout this world. Why do I give? Why should we give? Well, the last thing we're going to look at. The reason why is because our generous God has given us so much that we should generously give back to him. God generously wants us to give to each other. God sometimes will have people in our midst that may have greater needs than others. He said the poor are always with us. That gives those that of us that may have more to be able to give to them generously and see God glorified through that work. We give God generously in our time, in our talents, and in our treasures. Matthew 6:19 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jump down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You think, well, pastor, why are you preaching about money? God, God talked about it a lot. Jesus did. And I'm uncomfortable talking about it 
But when it comes up in a passage, I think we can address it. And in this passage, in Malachi, we see the talk about the tithe and how they were supposed to give. And the reason they needed to give was it showed where their heart was. When they gave correctly to God and they gave a heart with a heart of generosity, it showed that their heart was submitted to him. If they gave well and gave correctly with a heart of submission, Matthew six nineteen through 24 would be true in their lives. They would be storing up treasures for eternity and not simply serving the master of money. You know, it's interesting. I can think about uh, if I mean, there's friends here that I have or other or other places that may say uh, if they called me up or text me and say, hey, Tad, look, I have an opportunity for you. Tuesday, we're going fishing. This is the amount that it's going to cost to go fishing. This is the time requirements that it's going to take. And this is this is what you're going to have to do. When I hear that, you know what I may think? Depending on how good the opportunity is, I may move heaven and earth to make it happen. I may look at my kid's bike and say, you know what? They don't need that. Let's sell that so I can make this fishing trip, right? And then I see somebody else in our church that has a need, somebody around us that may not have enough, a church that I should serve or, or, or say, hey, we've had a short a shortcoming. I look at my kid's bike and I say, ah, I'm not going to sell that thing for that. And there's no chance that I'm going to give out of that bank account that may be fine because my heart may just not be generous because I'm serving a master of money, serving a master of pleasure, serving a master of myself, saying I want to use my time, my talent, my treasures, how I want, when I want. And I'm not going to worry about what anybody else thinks, because if I give a token amount to God and anybody else sees it, they'll know that I'm good. And if we all just give a token amount, we can just have we can go and be fine. But Jesus talks about radical, sacrificial generosity so that his kingdom can be built instead of our own kingdom. You may think, well, what do I what am I going to leave to my kids? What am I going to have left over? Keep giving to God, even when it's tough. Keep giving to God when it's hard and realize that what we have on this earth We can't take it with us. Somebody once said, I never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And then somebody bought a a hearse, uh, used hearse, and then pulled their U-Haul when they were moving. And it was like, oh, that probably had a lot of storage in it. You can't take it with you. Stephen King is an author. You may know Stephen King or you may not and never heard of him. But he's an author of many uh, fiction books that are, uh, you know, very thrilling to read. And he had an interesting... uh, Something happened to him in May of 20, uh, May 20th of 2001. Stephen King is a multimillionaire. He's written all these books, well-known. Many of his books turned into movies. And he got hit by a car on May 20th in 2001. And he delivered this speech, or he delivered these words to Vassar College. He said to the students, what will you do? Stephen King says, I will, I will tell you one thing you're not going to do, and that's take it with you. He says, a couple years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was lying in the ditch at the side of the country road, covered with mud and blood, and with my tibia of my right leg poking out of the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm, Stephen King says, I had a MasterCard in my wallet. 
But when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. If you find yourself in the ER with a serious uh, problem or the doctor tells you that, yeah, you have a lump on your chest or on your breast and it's a tumor, you can't wave your diner's club card at it and make it go away. Stephen King says this and he says, my life happened to be saved. He goes on and Stephen King would be somebody that we would say, we don't believe he's a Christian. He grew up in a Methodist background, but he doesn't claim to be a Christian. He believes in God, but he doesn't say I'm a Christian. But he does have a pretty good perspective. He says, we all know that life is temporal. And he said to these students, but on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Stephen King, broke. Not a dime. And he talks, and he it goes on, and he says, I'm aware of the time is passing by. And they say it's at the end in a blink of an eye. That's how long, just a blink of an eye. Stephen King actually understood money sometimes better than us Christians do. We do everything we can in our lives to hoard, to store up, to get everything we have, like the Israelites, and say, I'm going to give the least, the worst, the blind, the lame sacrifices as they did in Malachi. I'm going to give the bare minimum to God. And hopefully God blesses that. But when I get to the end of my life, hopefully I have enough for a great, wonderful retirement. And as we've said many times, and as you know, retirement in the American dream often looks like a double wide trailer in a 55 and older community in South Texas, which may be wonderful, but we're living for a home that's so much greater. We're living for a kingdom that's so much more beyond this. And so what do we do? We live generously. We live sacrificially. We live with God as our king saying, Lord, what would you have me do? Use my time. Use my talents. Use my treasure for your glory. And when I start to grasp it and think this is mine, Lord, show me that it's yours. And help us to be sacrificial, to be generous in whatever we have. Our generous God has given us everything. We should give back to him. Christ is our king. And we should give what to do him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these, the, at these many scripture verses on giving and the word of God, uh, talking about the, uh, this thing that's sometimes uncomfortable for us to hear, Lord, we, we read these verses and, Lord, it's convicting. Lord, it's been convicting to me because often I think of just checking a box of what I give. Or I can just check a box on the time that I put in or the effort that I give for your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would give and we would live with a heart that says you are our king and that we owe you everything. Lord, help us to live that way. And I pray that as people saw in the New Testament, those believers and how they lived and how it was so uncommon and so strange, but you were glorified because people saw these people living for you. I pray that people would see us living for you and not our own glory. And that would radically impact our community. Lord, I pray that there would be people here that as they see your glory through people's sacrificial lives lived for other people and for your glory, that they would submit to you as king. Lord, help us to know that you are God, you are our king, and that we owe you everything. 
I pray that we would gladly, happily give back to you because you have been so good to us. Lord, as we go into communion, as we celebrate what you've done, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our heart as we know how good our Savior was to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.